Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is the second of a four-part interview with Strike Eagle pilot Randall Hacker-Haskin. Enjoy. So if we if we go back in your in your career then to to you completing IFF and, and arriving at the B course, uh, why is it called the B course? What is it? B course just means basic course. Okay, so and it's the schoolhouse for the Strike Eagle. Then. It is. So, so, and you've known since graduating UPT that you were going to go to the Strike Eagle. I did know that. So there's yes. an assignments night. Yeah, you find out your assignment. Um, I don't know, maybe like a, a month before you graduate, and. Um, it, it was my number one choice. I was in a relatively small class of T-38 students. I want to say that there was like six or seven of us. And um, I, uh, unlike I'm sure plenty of guests you're going to have, I was not like the distinguished graduate of my class. Uh, I, I don't know. I like graduated like third or fourth, you know, in my class. Um, but when it came time to, um, I think I was the number three guy, um, the number one guy in my class, uh, he wanted to go to the F-15C. Number two guy wanted to go to an F-16, and I was the you know the first guy who asked for a Strike Eagle. So I was very fortunate that it worked out that way because that was kind of the airplane that uh, I'd wanted to go to for quite some time. That and the the Hog. I hate to, I hate to admit that, but so, so what was the uh, the decision making process for you then? Why why those those two? Uh, some of it was sentimental, and some of it was not. Um, the sentimental piece goes back to when I was an ROTC cadet. Um, one of the things that you do um, is go on visits of various Air Force bases just as you know, sort of familiarization to go out there and kind of see what the operational world is like. And one of the places that we went to was Mountain Home, and this is in the early 90s. And um, man, it was, uh, it was just a terrific experience to go out and see the Strike Eagles that were the, the Bull Tiger Jets. Although, it, so, I mean, even back further than that, um, I, I had a soft spot for the Eagle because I grew up up in the Pacific Northwest of the, of the States, uh, and at McCord Air Force Base, there was the 318th Fighter Interceptor Squadron that flew F-15As. They were uh, Air Defense Command, and uh, I grew up seeing those airplanes and just being fascinated by the noise and the speed and the, you know, sexy-looking airplanes. So there was a sentimental component to uh, the Eagle. Uh, I liked the fact that the Strike Eagle did both you know, air to air and air to ground. Um, I don't know that I necessarily had a preference between the two as a student. Um, I really, I, I liked, you know, tactical formation flying and, and there's a, a couple of exercises that you do as a UPT student that are sort of mock dogfighting and they're not really, but I, I enjoyed that tremendously. So I really did like the air to air component. I had been thinking about wanting to go fly the A-10 for a little while. Um, but I think my exposure to some of the, the air to air maneuvering in UPT made me want to go to some of a multi-role aircraft. Uh, I, you know, to be honest with you, I probably would have been just as happy in a, in a Viper. Um, but I think the kind of the sentimental thing in the back of my mind about uh, the, the the twin engine, twin tailed uh, Mac D warhorse was, uh, was in my mind there. So that's what made it come out on top and in my. What are, what are those first few weeks at Seymour Johnson? That's where the, the B course is, is run from, right? So what are the first couple of weeks at Seymour Johnson look like? Is it academics to get, you get treated like a cadet again <laughs> well you know it, it may just have been an artifact of kind of the time that i went through the b course but i had the distinct impression that um the instructors at the b course felt like they were the uh they were the hill i needed to climb over 
you know, that, that there were some gatekeepers to this, you know, vaunted Eagle community that, uh, and I had to meet their expectations in order to get into it. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that was at least my perception as a student. And, um, the sheer volume of things that there were to learn were quite intimidating. Um, on, when you show up, they, you know, issue you all of these manuals and workbooks and, and things to learn. And the stack of things that I got, you know, was like three feet tall. Um, so there was a huge amount of information and obviously there were lots of things that I'd never been exposed to before that I never really had to learn. So radar systems and, and different missile systems and all kinds of stuff that, you know, not only now did I have to learn an aircraft, but now I had to learn the ABG 70 radar at the same level of nuts and bolts understanding that I had about the aircraft too. I had to learn about the AIM-120 with that same level. So it wasn't really just learning a new aircraft. It was now, you know, learning four or five or six additional systems, weapon systems down to that same granular level of detail. And so, um, I'd say I I, I attempted to attack it with sort of the same level of academic intensity that I had put towards UPT. It was obviously very important to me to, to try at least attempt to do well. And, um, you know, on top of that, obviously the, the, uh, the flying itself new, newer, much bigger, more powerful, more complicated airplane. And, um, and there was, you know, now tactics to learn and all that kind of stuff as well. So, Anyway, you asked sort of how it started out. Um, yeah, there's just academics for, you know, the first month or so. Um, so just tons of classroom tests. I don't remember exactly how many there were, but there were, you know, like 15 or 20 different exams that we had to take throughout the, the process. Uh, so it was fairly academically intense. Um, it touched on a lot of things that Again, I had never really spent a whole lot of time studying. You know, I'm not an engineering degree type of guy out of college. I, you know, had a, a, a fuzzy Bachelor of Arts degree and not a Bachelor of Science degree. So um, the level to which I remember the, the radar stuff being somewhat intimidating to have to learn because there was, you know, uh, a lot of talk about RF energy and waveforms and pulse repetitions and things like this that, again, I, I know outside of just sort of being a general aviation enthusiast and knowing that these things existed, I didn't have to have any sort of understanding of them before. So, uh, I thought that was, was re- relatively, well, it was, it was difficult, but not, you know, insurmountable. It was a challenge, obviously. But, um, and, you know, just like I said before, in terms of, you know, fighter pilots kind of come in all shapes and sizes, you know, we had everything from, in my B course, uh, one of my B course uh, fellow students was Jack Fisher, who's a, an astronaut now, who's up been up in the International Space Station and was a graduate of MIT and, you know, had all this uh, uh, very high-level academic uh, interest. And then, you know, there were <laughs> there, there were other people I'll just say that were not quite as academically accomplished. Um, and, you know, all of us were, were, uh, in it together, you know, kind of trying to pull to get each other through. So, um, it was, it was quite a lot from that. Then you move on and, and I'd say that the, the training, um, progression, the training footprint, the concept of the syllabus is very similar to the introduction to fighter fundamentals track. So it starts out with some, you know, basic learning to fly the airplane, um, basic formation flying, advanced formation flying, advanced handling, offensive BFM, defensive BFM, high aspect BFM, low fly, surface attack, you know, a very similar sort of construction for the course. Um, There was obviously a logical progression of learning there that, you know, you're learning sort of the basic... uh, um, foundational concepts and, and, you know, ending up with at the very end of the, the program, they have a phase called the SAT phase, the surface attack tactics phase where you're essentially putting all those blocks together in, in the, you know, somewhat sort of tactical scenario where you're flying a low level, a two ship low level into uh, in, ingress into a target. You're having some sort of self-defense air to air engagement on the way in you're hitting some kind of a dynamic target with a tactical type of attack, and then you're being, you know, jumped by more MIGs as you egress the target area, some kind of air-to-air engagement there. And they have, you know, sometimes there are surface-to-air missiles being simulated out there, all kinds of stuff. So um, bearing in mind that the B-Course is a, a training environment, you know, and they it's not like they're going to throw you into the middle of a, 
an 80 ship red flag, you know, and show you that kind of a tactical experience. But, um, you know, I, I had the distinct thought as a, as a student who was going through the sat phase, the surface attack tactics phase that, wow, this is, this is, this is crazy. This is, you know, really intense. I, I actually remember, um, several times during the entire course, you know, I remember the once during when I was doing high aspect BFM, Another one we were doing sort of these um, basic two versus two BVR air to air engagements. I had days where I came home from work. I had either finished a flight uh, and been you know debriefed, or I had some sort of an academic test. And I, I said to my wife in so many words, "This is too hard for me. I can't do this." And the amazing part was going to sleep, waking up the next morning, and going out there and doing it again. So, for me at least, the um, the challenge level was right. I'd say at the limits of what my capabilities then were. And to the credit of not only the structure of the training program, but obviously the instructors who were there um, got me and everybody else through. How much of this is about remembering enough to pass the test and then being able to sort of dispense with that knowledge? Uh, Are the things that you were learning there to weed you out or were they there to provide the foundations that you then used as, as an operational striking pilot? I think from an objective sense, it was all important. But from a ability to cope with massive amounts of information, yeah, there certainly is a uh, prioritization skill, a cognitive skill of being able to determine this is important and that isn't. Um, I would say all throughout the Air Force training process, and whether we're talking about UPT, IFF, B course, or even beyond, you know, instructor courses and things like that, um, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance between what you're learning in the academic environment and what you're having to actually perform in the, the operational flying environment. And th- there's a bit of a attitude I would say where the although the academics are important it's far more important which of that that you can actually apply in flight so um, I'm not saying that you would put less emphasis on the academics than you would on the flying because if you don't if you don't understand a concept or you don't know what you're doing at zero knots and one G with your butt sitting in the classroom you certainly cannot apply that in the airplane at 450 knots and seven or eight G's. Um, that being said, there are certainly things that are request knowledge that is required of you in the classroom that may not necessarily have real world application in the aircraft. And it takes more experience than most students have to be able to, to filter those things out. Yeah. My question is sort of, uh, it's not, a correct parallel but it's the only one that i can draw but you know i've been through professional training courses you know project management and that kind of stuff and you know it could be a three-day course and you you come out of it thinking well you could have taught me the stuff that really matters in a day you know the other two days are almost filler they you know they provide some context they provide some background they provide some history you know th- those are those are sort of interesting things to know but they're not essential and and i could you know i just wonder whether or not you when you get to your operational squadron that you just there's a bunch of stuff that they taught you in the B course that you no longer really need to remember. I really can't speak for anybody else, but in terms of my own, you know, cognitive capacity, there was way more for me to know on a day-to-day basis than I had the ability to retain. And that even manifested itself uh, in terms of, you know, while I was out in the operational world before a particular flight, uh, I would, have to go into the vault and open up the 3-1 tactics manual and read the chapter on what we were doing that day to refresh my memory or, you know, open up a manual for a particular weapon or, or something like that. Um, especially in, in the multi-role community. And, you know, the, there's so many different disciplines to know that again, for me, I did not have the depth of knowledge on any given day of all of those different missions that I could just go out and and do it without any sort of um, academic refresher beforehand. And I'll compare that to another job that I had as an IFF instructor where comparatively it was so simple that I could walk in 
five minutes before the start of a brief, look up on the whiteboard at what mission I was flying, and I would already know, without looking at anything, what kind of instructional brief I was going to be giving the student on that day. And that, again, I, I don't have some sort of, you know, super intellectual capacity to be able to do that. It's just the level of understanding required and the amount of and type of information that you needed to know that made that possible. Uh, for me, that was not possible in the Strike Eagle world because, again, all of the different components of things that I had to know. I had to know the airplane. I needed to know the systems. I needed to know the weapons and the tactics. And, oh, by the way, I needed to know the enemy systems and the enemy tactics and their capabilities. Um, furthermore, tactics are always developing. Um, the I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think it's every other year that the 3-1 tactics manual is rewritten. There's a conference that all of the weapons instructor patchworkers get together and they you know, assess what has changed in, in the tactical world in terms of threats and they assess what the experiences have been out in the real world and things that patchworkers have seen in their individual squadrons and and they reevaluate what the tactics are. So it's very much a moving target. So even during you know, one, one operational tour in a squadron, a three-year time period, the, the, the version of 3-1 that you start with is not the same version of 3-1 that you finish with. So um, for me, I always had to be learning. I always had to be refreshing. And, it, you know, it's kind of that whole idea about the, you know, the tray with all the, the, the waitress has all that different food on it. And if you put something new on, something else falls off, you know. So um, I, I, there was a lot of constant study that was required. It doesn't necessarily mean that the other things that I was, f you know, forgetting about in my limited capacity weren't important. It's just that I had to have compartmentalization of what do I need to do to know today? Um, that skill was being built while I was a B course student, while they had all of that immense amount of information that they were throwing at me and I had to decide what was important today. The other thing that you haven't mentioned, of course, and I'm sure there'll be a bunch of people out there who'll be quite irritated by it, is um, you're learning to fly with uh, a weapon systems officer. I am. How does that work? You know, it's a, it's a it's an interesting transition because as a student pilot, obviously, you're always flying with another pilot. Um, EPT and IFF, at least when I went through, did what I considered to be a very good job of teaching students to be single-seat decision-makers. Um, especially in IFF, uh, I, you know, something as simple as, um, as a student wingman, if I missed, say, a radio call from my flight lead, and I have an instructor in my back seat, I might say, like, what did he say? And my instructors would be, you know, quite flippant. If they, weren't, if they didn't have the intercom completely off, they'd say something like, I don't know. You know, they were, and I'm sure that they heard, they knew exactly what it was, but they were forcing me to be a single seat decision maker, forcing me, if I have a question, key up the radio and ask my flight lead. Um, so before I ever got to the Eagle, the entire training process was forcing me to be an independent thinker and decision maker in the, in the front seat. Going from there now to a crew concept aircraft you know, my only exposure to flying with multiple people in the airplane is with another pilot on board. And I, I, although we trained with student WISOs while we were in IFF, um, you know, my understanding of what their knowledge and skill there, you know, what, what student WISOs and instructor WISOs knew was almost nothing. You know, there was almost no training of here's what a WISO is. Here's what they do know and don't know. Um, and so, you know, I did have some humorous moments in terms of, you know, learning what they sort of did and didn't know and kind of learning what the appropriate uh, roles and, and boundaries of those folks are. Uh, a, a funny early one on for me was my squadron commander was Chewie Baki, who is, you know, a relatively famous uh, Strike Eagle Wizzo. He's the guy who's responsible for shooting down the helicopter in Desert Storm. Uh, tremendously knowledgeable Wizzo a um, uh, charismatic commander, at least so for me as a student, to have somebody who was a stalwart, you know, sort of in the the history of the community, and I'd read about him, you know, in the Bill Smallwood Strike Eagle book. Um, and I remember a offensive BFM flight that I had with him uh, in my backseat as my instructor. And I don't remember what I was doing wrong, but there was something that I was screwing up, you know, in terms of the 
the weapons employment, I think is what it was. And, um, I remember him saying he had a really deep voice and he says, why don't you, why don't you let me have a, have a chance to demonstrate it to you? And it's embarrassing for me to say, but the first thing that, that went across my mind was like, yeah, what do you know, dude, about how to fly BFM? And, uh, and then he, you know, proceeded to fly this just picture perfect 4k or 9k or whatever engagement. And, and he didn't have all of the, the, um, uh, Hotas, you know, in the backseat to do all the weapons, but he was talking, you know, through every other, every, every switch engagement and everything like that. And that was mind blowing to me. I was like, wow, Wizzos actually know stuff. <laughs> so again, it's embarrassing for me to say now, but that was definitely my impression prior to that. Cause you know, I had no real exposure to what Wizzos were all about and you know, again, what they, what they'd been trained uh, I did have a, a couple of very good friends, lifelong friends, guys that you mentioned earlier who um, I, I was in IFF with and I was in the B course with. And um, you end up building tremendous trust with them once you get a little bit more experience. But the experience of being a student pilot and going to that environment is definitely different. It, it, my, you know, again, my only interaction with anybody else in the airplane was with an instructor pilot, which is. You know, when you get two pilots together, they're all the other guy is doing for me as a student is critiquing my performance. And, you know, I was a bit thinking like, what's a what's a non-pilot going to how's he going to critique my performance? Um, so, again, it, it takes a little bit of uh, uh, getting used to. But again, to the credit of the instructor Wizzos, and that's that's how that works. Um, you early on in the program, you fly, I don't know, three or four flights with an instructor pilot in your back seat you take a instrument check ride to basically get you qualified to solo the airplane solo, even though you don't fly it solo. And from then on for the rest of the program, you're flying with instructor Wizzos in your backseat. And obviously the instructor Wizzos is not their first radio. You know, they've flown with a lot of pilots that don't really know what to do with them. And, um, again, the guys that I flew with were tremendous at knowing their skill and knowing my skill and, and teaching me what to do, uh, as a pilot. Um, one of my one of my favorite instructor wizzos um, was uh, Graham Davis, who was a, an RAF exchange uh, officer, and um, he was tremendously knowledgeable, great instructor. And I don't know whether why it was this way, but he was kind of the primary guy who, when students were having trouble, he would be the one who would you know stay late in the squadron and and have his. Uh, he called a little brown bag, you know, where you'd bring your own food and you'd kind of sit down and he'd have separate academic sessions to, uh, to teach things. So, um, I, despite my impression that the B course instructors felt like they were gatekeepers, you know, who had to, uh, make sure that your, the students, uh, achieved a high level of performance to have the prestige of becoming Eagle drivers, um, Certainly there were just as many instructors who were there that wanted our success and were willing to put in a lot of extra effort to make sure that we could be successful. So you've talked a little bit about flying with an instructor wizzo. Um, at what point do you get paired then with a, a student wizzo? I was actually paired up with a student wizzo uh, all the way through the flying process, but early on, um, because you know most of the entire course is flown w- with some kind of formation, um, we are split off in terms of our instructors. So in other words, the flight lead is an instructor pilot and he has my crude student Wizzo in his back seat. And then obviously I'm, I'm in the front seat of the wing jet and then I have an instructor Wizzo in my back seat. And I, it's mostly that progression through the course. There are, I don't, I don't know how many there are now. I don't even know if they'd have them now, but they had, student solo sorties where both students would fly together. I had the lack of luck of my crude Wizzo washed out of the program. Uh, and so I never got to fly a student solo sortie. So I had the, the famous, uh, three V one, uh, sorties, you know, where two instructors are in the lead jet and there's one instructor in my back seat. So the debrief was quite long. What, what did your Wizzo wash out for? Um, about, Halfway through the program or so is where the Wizzo check ride, their their initial qualification check ride is. It's primarily a surface attack um, mission that they they get qualified on. Uh, the Wizzo that I had was a former RF4 Wizzo. Uh, he had been in the National Guard. He was uh, 
a relatively experienced guy. He was a Desert Storm vet. He had ejected from an F4 during Desert Storm. Um, I think he'd even received a DFC in Desert Storm. So he was not a neophyte by any stretch of the imagination. Um, But we got to the um, weapons employment phase where he was operating a pod and and a laser and bombs and targets and things. And and I believe it was stuff that he hadn't really done during his, you know, F4 times. I I don't know all of the details of where he'd been and what he'd done. Um, But he was struggling a little bit with it. And I think he started to have a bit of a personality clash between him and some of the instructors. You know, I kind of said before that... um, some of the instructors sort of saw themselves as gatekeepers and they expected students to sort of, you know, genuflect and, and, uh, act as if we were, you know, you know, new guys, right. Worship at their, at the altar. They're not really, but, uh, you know, they expected a, a certain type of behavior. And, um, to be honest, my crude backseater wasn't pledging the fraternity. He was already in the fraternity. Um, and I think he had, uh, a little bit of a personality conflict. And if you mix that in with the fact that he was having a bit of a struggle, um, I think some of the instructors maybe didn't judge him by quite the more generous standards that they might have someone that they liked a lot more. Um, from what I remember from him and I, I, he was a really great guy as far as I know, and he really helped me quite a lot as I was going through the process in terms of, you know, there was a lot of knowledge, things that he knew that I didn't and uh, was somebody that I really liked a lot. And I was certainly not happy at all to see him struggle. And I was not at all happy to see him wash out. Um, He went on to continue having a a pretty long military career. He was at 04 at the time and he made 05 and ended up being on, you know, some staff somewhere and, and continued to make rank. So, uh, he, he went on to success, even though that didn't particularly work out for him, but it certainly, I, I know it was a big struggle for him, but it resulted in a big struggle for me too. I'm, I'm wondering what the, uh, you know, when we talked yesterday, you talked a lot about how the strike has changed even in the short period of time, relatively short period of time since you, you since you left it. Um, so you, you know, your caveat is that what you talk about is what you knew back in the day. Um, yeah, my, so, my, the recency of my Strike Eagle world knowledge is 10 years old at least. So, so at that period in time, what was the division of labor between a WIZO and a pilot then? How, how did that work? It even evolved while I was there. Um, when I very first got to the community in, in sort of the 1999-2000 time frame, um, the division of labor was such that uh, radar operation, both in the air-to-air and air-to-ground realm, was primarily a backseat job, and especially true in in a wingman jet, where my responsibility was to look outside, fly good formation, you know, sort of employ ordnance in the forward visual, you know, hemisphere, um, and that was a pre-data link world. Um, so data link showed up in the strike Eagle community just around the nine 11 timeframe late 2001 and was implemented in the rest of the fleet over the next you know year or two. And once the situation display, which is the, the main mechanism from which data link information is displayed in the cockpit. Once that came on board, that became a primary Wizzo responsibility. And so, you know, they had to sort of shed their, their load <laughs> in terms of, of things that they needed to operate. Um, certainly there was a, a lot of front seaters in the strike community who in the, you know, air to air realm already were operating the radar. Those were not wingmen like me, get, you know, with my experience level, but there was, I remember there being a very big push. Um, my first weapons officer, um, a guy named Moto Nimai, who was ended up being one of the, the first, 10 guys picked to fly the F-22. So he was an extremely smart guy, you know, very tactically proficient. I remember very early on in a, in my operational unit in the rockets, um, you know, I'd kind of been trained to, to let my Wizzo run the radar. And I remember him saying today, you're going to run the radar all day. And I remember that being just tremendously intimidating. Like, I don't, I don't really know what I was, what I'm doing. Well, obviously that's the point, you know, you're never going to get better at it if you don't actually do it. Um, but you know he was a he was a big proponent of front seaters need to be running the radar, 
And, and that wasn't necessarily one of those things. Well, I mean, you know, part of it is you need to be competent doing it, but more importantly, you need to free up brain cells for your backseater to be doing other things and, and, um, and let them, you know, share their, share their load with other weapon systems and other sensors. The, the big picture here is data link is sharing of information, right? And the, if you sort of now take it down to a, a, a little more granular level, it really has to do with sensor fusion, which that's a, a buzzword that fifth generation fighters use a lot, um, but generally didn't exist in the fourth gen fighter realm. And so here's kind of what we're talking about. As I was sitting in the Strike Eagle cockpit, I had one display that had uh, the VSD, the, the radar uh, display on it. I had a different display that had the radar warning receiver on it. I had a different display that had my um, targeting pod on it. You know, those are three completely separate sensors uh, that are basically operating independent of one another. Fortunately, the, the E-model did some things that other aircraft didn't do where there was some cross population of information on the screens between those uh, sensors. But in terms of merging all of that information, that was up to me. So in other words, I had to look at the radar and the radar warning uh, display, look at the information that it was telling me. And then in my mind, use that to build some sort of a three dimensional picture, you know, is the, uh, radar spike that I'm getting is the type or the information that it's telling me, does that match also what my radar is saying? So is that, or is that telling me that it's different aircraft? Is it telling me that it's two aircraft that are together and one of them's, you know, displaying on one and not on the other. So there was certainly a lot of ambiguity and a lot that was left up to the particular skill of the pilot who was fusing that information together. Again, it was um, a learned skill that fighter pilots had to figure out. What Datalink does is it now takes all of that information that it, well, not all of it, but certain amounts of that information from those different sensors on different aircraft. And now it's using some computer logic to do some sensor fusion. And now it's sharing all that information with not just your formation, but it's sharing it off board with AWACS and it's sharing it off board with other fighter aircraft. By the same token, there's information coming to you in the cockpit from those other sources as well. So it is um, the SIT display, the situation display that I mentioned earlier. It's it's a clearinghouse of information. And using, you were using the term hook before, that means that relates to taking a pair of acquisition symbols and using a, a mouse basically on your controllers, moving those cues over the top of, of the symbology of either a friendly aircraft or a hostile aircraft or an unknown aircraft. And then being able to get kind of a data dump from the network of what all these different sensors around the network, whether they be ground sites, air sites, other fighter aircraft, whatever, um, knowledge about that particular uh, airplane. So, or what, you know, whatever it is we're looking at. So it, uh, it brings a huge amount of more information into the cockpit, which again is why that at the time, I don't know if it still is the case, uh, that became pretty much the exclusive realm of the, of the backseater to be able to get his situational awareness in terms of um, actively operating that sensor. Obviously, I'm still looking at it in the front seat. I'm still gaining information from it. It still is telling me uh, a lot of information that my other sensors are not telling me. Um, so, I mean, it's still obviously a very useful tool. It's just that I'm not in charge of operating it. Um, it. It really was a game changer. And during my first assignment um, flying the Eagle that, that the sit display showed up, I don't know that I fully appreciated what it was doing in terms of tactics. It was really more like I suddenly had this brand new bit of information. Um, it, the arrival of that particular technology sort of coincided with, I told you it showed it up, you know, right around nine 11. And so now that also coincides with a kind of a role change, a fundamental role change for the Strike Eagle, where prior to that time, it had been seen as kind of an F-111 replacement. You know, it was basically a, a self-escort capable deep strike type aircraft. And now with the flip of a switch, it suddenly becomes a close air support asset. So 
the attention that we were giving to the data link as an air-to-air tool now suddenly switches to how can we use the data link as an air-to-ground tool. And obviously, again, it has a, a huge amount of utility doing that. Um, but at least for the time that I was with the airplane, you know, b- b- before I had to leave off for my next assignment, before they kicked me out, um, I really didn't get to explore the air-to-air capabilities nearly as much as when I came back to the Eagle three years later at Lake and Heath. And now there was a new... Um, uh, software suite, which again had additional capabilities and better implementation, um, more opportunity to explore the air-to-air capabilities of a, of a fully data-linked um, fighter. Uh, again, I, I did not necessarily realize what a game changer that was the, at the beginning of when it arrived. Certainly, when I got back to the Strike Eagle three years later, it was like going back to a going back. It was like going to a completely new airplane because there had been so much change. And obviously with, you know, change in technology and with change in weaponry and change in capabilities, that also necessitates changes in tactics. And so, um, you know, I had, it was like relearning it from zero. It was, it was kind of an awkward feeling going back. It was wonderful. It was like putting on, you know, an old, old set of jeans, but they had been dyed a different color or something like that. You know, it was or much tighter yeah, <laughs> or they were more loose. That's a that's an interesting topic in itself. Um, one of the one things, you don't want to talk about. No, no. <laughs> not, not the time. That's interesting. Jeans, now no. let's go on to something different. Oh, oh, you're talking about airplanes, not the jeans. Okay. There, there, there's there have been a couple of of people that I've spoken to um, who have talked about people returning to the fighter world from a non flying tour or flying something completely different or whatever, um, and it ties in with what you were talking about with regards to your the student wizard who you know was a, an XF4 guy um, and the difficulty that that some people can face returning to something that they once mastered um, either because some of those skills have atrophied or because even if the skills haven't atrophied that much the platform has changed or the tactics have changed um, how difficult is, is it to do that then where you know to come back to something that you thought you knew well and find it it was different so for me, I, I in the time in between my two Eagle assignments, I'd been a fighter lead and instructor, an IFF instructor. Um, and that was also a foundational change for me. It was the first time that uh, I was a, a Air Force instructor um, because I was flying without a WIZO. Uh, as strange as that sounds, I had to learn to be a single-seat fighter pilot again. I also had to learn to be a single seat fighter pilot who was also taking care of a wingman that sucked, right? Cause he's a student. Um, so I had a lot of learning and development to do on that assignment. So I returned to the strike Eagle as a different pilot, which, you know, obviously of course I did. Um, so I had a different set of skills and I had a different, um, outlook on what it means to be a flight lead, what it means to be an instructor, et cetera. And, I was not prepared for how different the aircraft was. I thought it was going to be, wow, I'm going to go back as such a better flight lead and I'm going to get, put this, you know, hat back on and I'm just going to be, I'm going to tear it up. And, uh, it was awkward for me. Um, and even, even something as strange as guys who had, or pilots and whizzos who had been my students while I was an IFF instructor were suddenly now my flight leads. And that didn't bother me, but it was just, there was a bit of kind of cognitive dissonance is the last time we flew together, I was writing a grade sheet on no, and now you're writing a grade sheet on me. Uh, and, and then add to that, the last time we flew together, I was in a position of knowledge and authority. And now the shoe's on the other foot and I'm the awkward one who I can't answer your question because I, I don't know and it's new and different. Um, so that was, that was tough. Um, you know, looking back kind of now with a, a flying career's worth of experience, that's something that I experienced many times. You know, I, I went through cycles there, right? So I went from flying the Strike Eagle as a new guy, and I had all this stuff to learn. And then I went back to the T-38 as an instructor, so I had all this new stuff to learn. Then back to the F-15E again, and it was a changed aircraft and, and changed tactics, and I had all this new stuff to learn. And then I went back to being a T-38 instructor, and now I had to relearn that hat. That was something, you know, completely different. I think, you know, I sort of toughened up. Uh, from going from a high level of knowledge and, and proficiency and experience to being knocked down to the very bottom again, and now I have no qualifications and I have to earn my way back up, that cycle's continued. I mean, that continues even today when I got onto my airline gig. I entered as a brand new guy who didn't know a thing about a thing, and, and I had to shut my mouth and listen and learn. And, uh, 
you know, gain proficiency and gain experience and, and, you know, kind of get to where I am right now. So, and even in other types of flying, you know, we talked about, I like to, or I'm kind of dipping my toe into, uh, flying World War II airplanes, vintage aircraft, which I really enjoy quite a lot. And unfortunately, you know, having 3000 hours of flying fast jets around just doesn't simply, uh, you know, dovetailed directly into getting into a 1940s tail dragger with a big radial engine and, uh, and doing that kind of flying. So, um, at the time it was awkward for me to, to have gone from being quote unquote experienced to, to not being this time, you know, I'm at this point in my sort of life and career, it's old hat. I, I expect that. And, you know, it's actually very good, I guess, as a, a building of airmanship, to kind of understand that when you go on to something that's not in your current, you know, sort of realm of experience and proficiency that, uh, you need to be humble, you know, and be ready to, and it's okay to go on to the next thing and, and it's okay to be new and it's okay to not know. Um, and just, you know, to sort of be prepared to have that sort of attitude going into the, uh, a new type of airplane or a new type of flying. One thing we haven't talked about is your first ride in the Strike Eagle. It's- I was immediately struck by how similar flying the Eagle was to flying the T thirty eight. T thirty eight was a, a excellent trainer for that. Um, because the the speed at which things are occurring is almost the same. Um, the stick and render handling quality is it, not fighting. So this is just taking off and joining up in flying formation or flying instruments, just sort of the administrative flying around. It's very similar in terms of speed and characteristics. So it was a very good trainer. I did not feel um, outclassed at all. Now I was, I was a little bit emotionally intimidated, you know, suddenly now I'm in this big frontline fourth gen fighter and uh, you know, it's obviously a much heavier airplane and there's more complex and you know, there's kind of a, a, psychological pressure on you to wow look you know, I, I remember on my very first flight being down at the end of runway the arming area you know where they're pulling pins and arming things up and I remember there was somebody parked next to me down there and, and I said that guy looks cool and the pilot that was in my back seat goes you look that cool too you know so it's kind of one of those things where like wow I can't really believe I'm really here doing this um, you know you roll out on the runway and plug in the burner and obviously there's substantially more power um, even though it's a much heavier airplane and, you know, it still accelerates kind of T-38-ish, um, takes off about the same speed, kind of cleans up about the same speed. I definitely had a feeling that it was a, a a much heavier aircraft. It wasn't quite as maneuverable and it does have a digital flight control system. So, um, you know, some small things like while the airplane is in straight and level flight, you sort of feel it hunting around a little bit. You know, it's, it's, uh, it will obviously maintain a perfectly good altitude, but you know, the nose sort of bobs up and down just a little bit as the, as the flight control systems are seeking that, you know, one G trim. Um, there is a yaw damper. So, you know, there's a little bit of hunting side to side that probably existed in the T-38, but I just didn't have a perception of it. Um, God, I remember the one thing that it's so embarrassing to talk about right now was, that you could feel the radar moving back and forth and it was banging to the left and, you know, banging to the right. And I could feel it in my feet. I remember asking my instructor, what is that? And he's like, yeah, that's the radar, man. Um, so again, I had no experience and, and no idea what that felt like, but, um, just little things like that, that were kind of strange. Um, I alluded to it earlier when I was talking about the fact that, uh, the Eagle engine is a dual spool, um, engine, so what that means in terms of while I'm physically moving the throttles is there's a little bit of a lag in both directions as the, the N1 and the N2 RPMs are different, which means that I have to be a little bit more predictive and a little bit more precise with my throttle movements, especially when I'm in formation. Same thing goes for the fact that it does have a digital fly-by-wire control system that is on top of a hydromechanical control system. Um, you know, that, that means that how I physically grip the stick, how I moved it when, when I needed precise movements, especially again in, in close formation, it's a little bit different. It's, it's, uh, I, you know, I won't say that it's less precise or more precise or doing of, uh, flying a straight, you know, mechanical flight control system, like in a, or a hydraulic flight control system, like in the T38, but it was just slightly different. Um, those weren't bothersome. They were very minor things compared to the fact that it was mostly the same as a T38. Um, 
so certainly it was a it was a uh, intimidating experience to start with. Once I actually got into the airplane, I had the realization that wow, this is this is really not all that different. This is really just another airplane, and it has a stick and throttles, and it, <laughs> it works the exact same way uh, as the other airplanes I've flown. So uh, once sort of that new awe kind of started to wear off, and especially once. You know, as I mentioned earlier, once we started talking about actually employing the airplane as a weapon, <clears throat> there was so much more to learn that, you know, I was I was intellectually occupied with those things more than I was. Wow. Look at this big, you know, badass twin tail twin, jet, you know, twin jet fighter. OK, so you're. At the end of the B course, you've got this surface attack um, check ride that you've got to fly is that what it's, it's, the, called? it's called the mission check, right? Mission, mission check. Mission yeah. check. Okay. So, mission so, qualification. so what, what does that look like? How does it work? Is you, you know, if you fail it, do you get to retake it? <laughs> you do, you get to reattempt it. Uh, you know, as I was alluding to earlier, the surface tech tactics phase is, is attempted to be attempts to be sort of a fusion of all the different building block elements that you've learned throughout the B course. Um, you know, Again, I imagine now that it's it's much more complicated since you have much more toys and things, and and there's a there's a lot interestingly enough in the B course that we operationally ended up doing that wasn't really covered at all uh, in the B course, and and a lot of it has to do with as I said earlier, kind of the fundamental change that happened after nine eleven, where we added sort of this close air support tool to our toolbox that some units did quite a bit, but um, certainly the Strike Eagle community did not see itself in general, as a big close air support asset. In fact, I remember on one of the very early uh, trips out to the range in the surface attack phase, uh, so you're learning to drop bombs, and there's, there's no tactical element to it at all. You're really just administratively flying around the range and, and learning how to get into diving patterns and all, all different things to drop both conventional bombs and laser-guided bombs. And I remember asking my instructor when we were going to go strafe, and just because I assumed that because we had a gun on the airplane and that, that you know, I knew other fighters did air to ground employment. When are we going to go strafe? And he kind of looked at me like I had a third eye, like we don't strafe in the strike eagle. Um, and there's some good reasons why they didn't do that. I, I guess I won't say there's good reasons, but uh, because it's a it's a canted up gun. Um, it's a gun that's optimized for uh, air to air employment. So it pulls a little bit of lead and makes it a little bit easier to empl- employ there makes it complicated to to shoot the ground because you know you have to aim short of the target because the gun is is canted up so that adds some complications so it wasn't really part of the airplane's normal toolbox which you know again later once the airplane at least in the you know sort of 2002 and beyond time frame um that became a, a primary weapon uh which again we didn't do it all in the b course so i'm sure it has changed i would hope that it's changed but it's been 20 years, so... Uh, anyway, nonetheless, uh, the SAP phase is designed to, to be a capstone, you know, to, to be able to demonstrate that uh, not only as a employer of Strike Eagle weapon systems, but also as a member of a crew and as a member of a formation, uh, a member of a, you know, a mission team, that you can perform all these different elements. So I, I don't remember if it was my very last ride that we did that... I think the last ride is the check ride, but it's a little bit of a hazy memory right now. Um, but uh, on mine, we had some heavyweight inert bombs, uh, heavyweight inert 500-pound bombs, so we were dropping live. They weren't really live, but, you know, the heavyweights. And that was kind of exciting because I don't know that I dropped heavyweights at any point before that. Um, the, the difference being the BDU-33, which is the sort of little... That's a typical practice bomb, a 30-pound, okay. 30, 30 25-pound okay. practice bomb. Because most people would think, well, a heavyweight would be a 2,000-pound bomb, but you, you just true. mean a full-size Any, bomb. Anything that's not 25 pounds, yeah. <laughs> so, it's a, I mean, it's a it's a full-size Mark 82 or Mark 84 uh, that's filled with, you know, concrete. I, I don't know what's really in there, but I assume it's, you know, some, some sort of heavy mass that's inert. Um, and... So I mean the the BDU thirty three is designed theoretically to have the same ballistic characteristics as one of those five hundred pound or two thousand pound bombs. I've never made that comparison myself, um, you know. But uh, you know the guidance systems on the airplane are certainly close enough. Uh, but there is something visceral, you know, about pushing the uh, pickle button and physically feeling the clunk of something heavy coming off the airplane, and you know the weight of the airplane changing while while things are leaving it. That 
you know, it's, it's, it's probably a small symbolic thing, but you know, to somebody who hasn't dropped those at all, it's kind of exciting. Uh, so anyway, so you know, the scenario was, um, and this was typical of sat scenarios, not just on the check ride. So we had done this in, you know, several times before, uh, you would set up for some kind of a low altitude ingress. Uh, it was during the daytime, but it would be some kind of a two ship low level route. Um, there would be simulated surface air missiles of some sort off range. There's really nothing, um, you know, physically that they can use to, to simulate a SAM launch. So it would be over the radio. Um, somebody, one of the instructors in the formation would talk about there being a SAM launch. So we would do some sort of single ship or two ship threat reaction to some kind of a surface air missile. And, um, you know, depending on what they decided they wanted to see out of us, there would be some sort of simulated protection, air to air protection for the target also. So we would have, some, usually it would be a two V two beyond visual range, uh, some sort of an AMRAM engagement. It could degenerate into some kind of a visual engagement, but I don't really recall it being that way. I think the, you know, given given our skills as B course students, I think they set up pretty vanilla uh, bandit scenarios for us. So shoot off a couple missiles, kill some MIGs on the way in, get into a target area. Again, maybe face some opposition in the target area. Um, they have a little thing called a Smoky Sam, a little smoke rocket that they shoot off that, you know, simulates a visual Sam launch. And uh, I remember on my check ride, they shot off a couple of those guys. Do some sort of a, uh, you know, real world-ish attack because you're dropping heavyweight bombs. Uh, bombs come off, and then as you're coming off target, because your attention has been on target area stuff, and you haven't really been paying attention to things going on in the air. Um, you get kind of jumped at short range at, you know, it's, if it, if it doesn't start visual range, it quickly goes from a beyond visual range into a visual fight. Um, because there's obviously a, a short range tactic that we've been practicing, you know, sort of in the ACM realm, some sort of short range, uh, um, engagement. And then once that clears out, uh, then just hauling ass home, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe some more different types of threat reactions. Well, if we didn't do something on the ingress, then they might add it out to the, the egress from the target area. Uh, and then all of the administrative stuff that goes along with that. So, you know, you recall when we were talking about IFF, that it's admin weapon school, you know, they are, IFF is primarily concerned with all of the administrative stuff and none of the tactical stuff. So good wingmanship, you know, being able to do a appropriate battle damage check and being able to call back um, home and do a uh, battle damage report, you know, pass in your status and uh, be a good, you know, good, good wingmanship. You still have to be able to display that even amongst all of the stress of a tactical scenario. And just like in IFF, the, you know, the, the fact that you do dogfighting and bomb dropping is really kind of unrelated. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not... Students think that's what they're actually learning, but what they're really learning is around all of that stuff, being a good wingman. And it's kind of the same when you get to the B course as well. Um, and, and how that manifests itself is, you know, you can go out and you can miss your target or you can, you know, have terrible weapons employment or something like that. And you can still get a good grade on the ride, you know, depending on what things are looking at. If you have good admin, if you're still being a good wingman and, and a safe wingman and things like that. So the, um, you know, the grading reflects that level of interest, meaning that once you actually get out to the operational units, that's now where they're going to focus on tactics more than admin. Who, who provides Red Hat then for, for that? It's mostly internal. Um, so in other words, it's other instructors in the squadron who are, so there's two ship Eagles out there that are doing it. I don't, I did not have any dissimilar red air. Um, but obviously where Seymour is located, there's lots of opportunities to have dissimilar red air. Um, and so I, I know that, that the B coursers use that sometimes. I just didn't have any opportunity for it. So, so what is the expectation of an operational squadron in terms of you arriving? What are they, you know, what are they expecting of you? Because you're not mission qualified at that point. No, that's correct. I would say in the same way that the B course expects a brand new B course student to be a good wingman based on what they've learned in IFF, the operational units expect you to be a good wingman. And that's a, you know, in, in many cases, in many facets, that's a pretty high bar because they expect your admin to be perfect. They expect not to have to 
take time and effort out of their debriefs to talk about your admin because the focus is learning tactics and executing tactics, which you do learn some of those in the B course to the best extent possible. They try and execute them uh, or they, they try and make you as a student execute them. But again, in the B course, the tactical scenarios that they set up are relatively simple and that's with intent. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to have the, uh, the 4v16 versus SU30 MKKs, you know, shooting PL12s and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so um, when you obviously get into the, the operational units, because you're going to, to start ratcheting up the threats, you're going to start trying to execute missions or trying to execute, I guess, training flights that more accurately mimic the missions that you would expect to fly in a real conflict. Wingmen have to be able to do the administrative tasks um, and that also includes basic manipulation of the sensors and weapon systems. So, um, you know, everything that that employs or, or includes good employment. Um, you expected to have, have flown the airplane then also through the full envelope of the, that it's available to you. I mean, you mentioned dropping those, um, those concrete 500 pounders. And I wondered, had you flown the airplane with, had you flown the airplane heavy? Prior no, I, in fact, I had never flown the airplane with external fuel tanks before. Um, I'd never flown the airplane particularly heavy. Uh, I'd never flown it with laser guided bombs on board. Um, I had been to the tanker before, so I sort of understood what a lightweight airplane versus a heavyweight airplane, well, have, quote unquote heavyweight, you know, full of fuel, full of internal fuel um, handled like. But no, there was a, a tremendous pantheon of of things that were out there for me to experience my first year in an operational unit that were really exciting whether it be you know the option opportunity to shoot a live missile at a missile shoot um red flags uh you know you name it there's there's quite a lot out there to to still see and do there's a huge amount of learning your first year in a fighter squadron i, I mean i would say that probably if I could relive any year of my entire career, if I could relive that first year in a fighter squadron over and over again, that was really the most exciting time because there's so much really to learn and there's so much to see and do and it's very exciting and, and I you have enough experience and confidence that um, you know, you're not constantly self-conscious about that piece, but there's so much new and, and so much still to learn. And you, you know that, that, you know, that's the expectation that you're, you're there to learn. But, um, yeah, anyway, so, uh, it's a little, a little bit beyond what that, what the expectation is, but there's, a um, there's a, a fairly high bar in terms of that administrative component and there's a medium bar in terms of here's how we do things in the real world. What, what determined then the assignment that you got out of the, the B course? At the time that I went through, and you know, I I believe that it was a, a moving target in terms of how it was done. But um, in my class, we did it via seniority, so the most senior guys picked first, which of the eagle bases they wanted to go to. You didn't get to pick which squadron, but you you picked uh, which base that you wanted to go to. And I don't even remember where I fell. I mean. I had to have been middle of the pack. I, I was, if I was, I, if I was not already a captain when I was there, I was at least a first lieutenant, um, because you know, again, I'd, I'd spent my first three years um, in the the maintenance world before I went to pilot training, and I was a first lieutenant when I went through pilot training. I don't remember exactly when I pinned on captain, but uh, interestingly enough, though, I was not the most senior guy. Um, you know, earlier you were kind of talking about. Um, my interaction with, with pilots from, you know, outside the fighter community. <clears throat> and that was actually my first interaction with some heavy guys because the, um, the air force had instituted a, uh, uh, cross train program. They needed people to go to the fighter community at the time. And I don't really know what drove that, but, and this is in the, uh, late nineties. So they, you know, put out sort of, uh, open applications for guys from the from anywhere in the non-fighter community to apply as long as they had been uh, T-38 trained, which at the time um, most of those guys would have been because they didn't institute the, the two-track training everywhere until, you know, 94, 95. Uh, and there were three guys in my B course 
who were from other airframes. Um, one guy had been a former AC-130 pilot. Another one was a KC-135 pilot. Another one was a B-1 pilot. Um, one of them, the B-1 pilot, had actually been my instructor when I was a T-38 student. And he'd even, he'd even give me a check ride. And even today, you know, on, on not today, but, you know, even now, uh, I, I occasionally blame him on Facebook for letting me get to the Strike Eagle, that if he had been a little bit harsher with his uh, grading, I wouldn't have made it. So, you know, any of my misdeeds in the Eagle community are partly his fault. But, um, and, you know, as we talked about earlier, because there are, you know, multiple disciplines to this whole thing there's a you know a stick and rudder discipline and there's a a cognitive sort of intellectual horsepower discipline and all that sort of stuff um that was my first exposure to guys that just thought differently and again i was new i didn't i had i had no preconceived notions about it so i was sort of brought up as a fighter baby to begin with um but um you know seeing some of these guys who already had other experience already were well-respected people in their other communities because otherwise they wouldn't have been selected to come to the fighter community anyway. So um, by definition, they were successful officers and successful pilots. And we all sort of struggled the same way, you know, so uh, we may have looked at things slightly differently. um, And, you know, if, if I guess if I look at success versus, you know, difficulty or failure, you know, we all ended up sort of having the same level of challenge. Um, I, I I don't know that those guys had any more challenge than I did. But, uh, you know, based on sort of my experience later on in life, again, what we were talking about earlier in terms of you go to a new aircraft type and you're, you know, back at the bottom, you have to learn everything from zero. There are things to unlearn, though. There is negative transfer from previous experience and previous uh, habits. So those guys probably had negative transfer that I didn't. 